This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're beginning chapter 25. No one wants to be left out or caught off guard. We all like to be prepared. But being prepared isn't something that happens automatically. So it's not uncommon for us to make choices that make our life easier, but leave us less than ready for what comes next. As we'll learn from today's parable, when Jesus comes back to the earth, you want to be ready. You must be prepared for that day because when he arrives, it will be too late to set things right. The Bible says it in both Testaments. Today is the day of salvation. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Follow along with me and let's understand the reason why we should remain vigilant in our walk with Christ. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, singing, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So, a very clear story here. Remember, parables are fictitious story. This didn't really happen. The purpose of Jesus Christ is to tell a story, to illustrate a principle. And it's the same one from the previous parable. And it's the same one for the next parable that we'll study, only with slight variations. And the point here he's making is you believers in Christ need to remain vigilant, living with the reality that any day could be the day that you will see Christ, either by natural death or by the rapture, or in the case of the generation of the end times, when Jesus Christ comes back in all glory and power. So there are four reasons here that we should remain vigilant. Number one, a helpful preparation, verses one through four. Now the context here of this parable, in a Jewish wedding feast, a bridegroom would arrive unannounced at the bride's house to take her to the house that he had been preparing for sometimes up to a year or more, where the celebration would take place. We are familiar with this idea because Jesus alludes to the scene of a wedding in John 14, verse 3. Listen to his words. He says this, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. See, that's what a bridegroom does. The bridegroom will go to his house and prepare the house for the bride. And he continues, And uh, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So that's the scene of a Jewish wedding feast. Everybody understood what he was talking about here in the parable of the ten virgins. Now, the ten virgins were the ten bridesmaids 
waiting with the bride, who, by the way, is not mentioned in the parable because it's not relevant who the bride is. The point is, there were 10 virgins, 10 bridesmaids who were charged with the task of celebrating with the bride, of staying ready because they were part of the wedding party. They would accompany the couple in a procession, usually at night, hence the need for carrying lamps serving as torches, which would really indicate that they had a ticket to go to the party. That would be, no, we're with the bridegroom and the bride here, so we're supposed to come in. Now, in this particular story, we have five prudent virgins or prudent bridesmaids and five foolish ones who failed to prepare, so they lived carelessly. Now, one of the reasons this parable caught the attention of the disciples is that the Old Testament portrays God as the husband of his people Israel. Let me give you a few examples of that. Isaiah 54 verse 5, we're told, Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. And then again in Hosea 2, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. So the Old Testament portrays God the Father as the bridegroom of his people Israel. And here we have Jesus Christ clearly illustrating that he is the bridegroom who is coming back, making himself equal with the Father. Now, nothing is new here. He already made this claim. According to John 8, verse 58, he says very clearly, Before Abraham was born, I am, using the same identifier that God used when he talked to Moses in the burning bush. So the the illustration is clear. He is God the Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is equal with the Father. That is the reason why the Pharisees and the hypocrites of that time were furious at him. That is the reason that ultimately they wanted him crucified because he's claiming equality with God. And here he is telling the disciples, I am the bridegroom here who's coming back. And here's how you should live They struggled with this idea until the Holy Spirit came and gave them clarity. So much so that some of them wrote the New Testament and clarified those things with us. So, clearly then, God has revealed selected aspects of the future of humanity. So, we have the ability then, church, to live in a fallen world free from anxiety. Now, I don't mean that you will never be anxious again, but what I mean is when anxiety happens, and it will happen, it happens from time to time for all of us, then you know exactly what to do when those unwanted thoughts come to your head and to your mind. What God wants us to experience then is the peace and the hope that we need to be concerned with having enough oil, as it were, and be prepared for His return, and in our case, to see Him in the clouds. And that is the reason why Paul instructs the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean a, a terrifying fear of what's going to happen in the world, but the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all wisdom, the Bible says. So work out your salvation. See, we don't need to work for our salvation, but we need to work out the salvation that we already have. In other words, we have been given a tremendous treasure, a tremendous gift, and we are to utilize that gift for the honor and glory of the Lord, for the good of, all, of other people, and for our maturity as well. So reason number one, then, we, why we should stay vigilant is for a helpful preparation, verses 1 through 4, according to the parable of the ten virgins here. But there's a second reason I want you to know, and that is on, from verses 5 through 9, is a healthy perspective. God wants us to have a healthy perspective on life and of future events. Now, in the story here, both groups of bridesmaids 
experienced human limitation. They fell asleep. That's fine. That's, that's part of, of human nature. They experienced fatigue because they were experiencing what, from their perspective, from all ten of them, was an unpleasant delay. But remember, the delay is from our own perspective because God exists outside time. You and I need time to keep track of ages, to keep track of a whole bunch of things, of seasons and all that. God doesn't need any of that. So the delay is from our own perspective. So in the mind of God, there is no delay. Everything happens in the right time. So next time you're tempted to argue with God and say, Lord, why are you taking too long to get this resolved for me? Why is this taking so long? Why don't I have a job already? Or why don't I have the good news from the doctor already? Or why, what, what's taking you so long? Just remember, he's not in a hurry. You are, not him. He always comes through at the right time. Not late, not early. So the delay is from the human perspective here. So there are a couple of lessons that emerge very clearly here for us today. First, I want you to see that the preparedness of the prudent virgin teaches us that sanctification is necessary and personal. Now, if you don't know what that word is, if this is a theological word, sanctification, let me do some explaining here. At the moment you were saved, at the moment God in Christ saved you, you were justified, meaning declare righteous in the eyes of God. You were also sanctified, meaning set apart for God, by God, and to God. But there's a gradual process of sanctification that Paul talks about in the book of Philippians, first chapter, that God began a good work in you. So God is doing a good work in your life right now. Even when you experience sorrow, it's a good work of God in your life designed to draw you near to Christ. So that's the process of sanctification. And that's not a passive process on our part. Now, of course, God is the Savior and the sanctifier, but there are some things we must do in order to achieve that sanctification. There's no merit in any of us. You can't come and say to God, I'm holier than I was five years ago, which is the goal, of course, but not because of any ability or willingness on your part, but because He has given you saving grace and sanctifying grace. So sanctification is not a passive exercise. There are things we must observe and do. And let me read some Bible verses to you, but I want you to notice specifically active verbs, okay? There are active verbs in all of these verses that I'm going to read to you, and what they tell us is that God expects action from us as believers in Christ. So waiting on the Lord is not a passive exercise. Waiting on the Lord means to do certain things and to be a specific or, or to achieve a specific type of character that He expects from us, but He has already given you all of the ability to accomplish all of these things. So Philippians 1.27, we're told, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's an active, strong verb, conduct yourselves. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 2 and 5. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Did you catch all of the action verbs here, church? Everything that God expects us to do while we wait to see Him, to meet Him face to face and give an account of our lives, accumulating oil, as it were. Now listen to this one again, Philippians 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. 
Did you know that rejoicing is a command and not a passive thing that happens to you? See, the world wants us to know that rejoicing is a passive thing that happens to us only when things go our way. The Bible says, no, you are to rejoice in the Lord. And in case you missed it the first time, this is what Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will rejoice. Three times in the same epistle here, we are told to rejoice. Let me ask you a question. How many times does God need to command something for us to understand that that command is real, that he wants us to do? Once. And here we have three times. Rejoice in the Lord. And then later he says, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. So rejoicing is a command. It's an active thing. It's a choice you make. Now, of course, if you keep your eyes on the problem, if you keep your eyes on the situation, on the circumstance, on the state of the economy, or who's going to be the next president, who's going to be the next governor, who's going to take care of me, yeah, you're going to be anxious. It's hard to rejoice when you're filling your minds with all of these things. But now when you rest in the providence of God, when you rest in His forgiveness, when you rest in His peace, in His command to rejoice, in His promise that He'll take care of you, then your soul is going to be renewed and your hope will be renewed because it's his job to take care of you. Your job is to seek his kingdom first and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you, the Bible says. Listen to some more of the action verbs here. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Philippians 4, verse 8. So we are to dwell on these things. Don't dwell on YouTube. Don't dwell on the news. Dwell on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is of good repute. Church, I ask you, is gossip of good repute? No. Is the latest celebrity affair of good repute or honorable? No, it's junk. You don't need to know. It doesn't matter. We are to dwell on these things. And that is how we prepare to live a life that God wants us to live in a way that honors Him and causes our maturity. And again, these verses that I just read to you emphasize what Jesus teaches in this parable, the parable of the ten virgins. Namely, that Christ equips us to have a healthy perspective on the anxiety of the day. Instead of occupying our minds with fear, we must remain vigilant, anticipating His return, actively growing in holiness. The second part, I told you there are a couple of lessons here. The second lesson is this, very important. You cannot borrow someone else's sanctification. You cannot borrow someone else's holiness. You see, my brother's sanctification encourages me and inspires me, but I cannot leech off of him. So sanctification is personal. I cannot borrow merit from my hero of the faith. Okay? Which means we're not spiritual bats. We cannot drink holiness from the people we admire. Yes, we should imitate them, but pursuing sanctification is a personal journey. Thankfully, not a lonely one. Because sanctification is a relational process. That is why God expects you to be involved in the church. That is why the Bible tells us that you're supposed to gather together on a regular basis. Why? Because I need to pursue sanctification and the righteousness of God. And I have brothers and sisters who are running the race with me. Now, when I don't care about the things of God or when everything else is more important than gathering together for corporate worship... Then, then that process is violated. See, I can point you to Christ. 
but you must respond to him. I can't do it for you. You must pursue the renewing of your own mind. You can't borrow from mine or from any other brother or sister in Christ. You must yourself put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts, Romans 13, verse 14. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ personally. In fact, you yourself must take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, Ephesians 6, verse 13. See this, another action-packed verse. Put on the full armor of God. You yourself. Don't borrow mine because I only have one and that is for me to use. In fact, even if I try, my armor will not protect you because it's custom made for me. So to use the imagery that Jesus uses here in this parable, get your own oil while you'll still have time. And let me talk to you about the third reason why we should stay ready and vigilant. And we're going to call this a hopeful prospect. Verse 10. The hopeful prospect is that the bridegroom rewarded the uh, prudent virgins here for their zeal, for their care, and for their diligence. Now, in case you're thinking, well, but they weren't really compassionate with the others. That is not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is, is to teach a very clear lesson that we are to personally pursue holiness. That, that's what the metaphorical oil is here in this particular case. Okay? In case you're thinking the Holy Spirit. That's not, the Holy Spirit is not in this parable. Christ rewarded them for their zeal, their care, and their diligence. And again, their lit torches would evidence their status of the, they were ready. They were good to go. They had plenty when the bridegroom came. But I don't want you to miss another very important connection with a, another symbol that the Word of God uses here. As you know, as born-again followers of Christ, Jesus says in the, another sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that we are the light of the world. That is in Matthew 5, verse 14. And the only reason we are the light of the world, church, not that there's any light in us. In fact, there's only darkness in us because of our sin. But we are the light of the world because the one who is light lives in us. John 9, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So because the one who is light lives in us, we can shine the light of Christ and we can shine brighter. And let's not miss that connection here in the, in the parable as well. We are to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 16. So part of us staying ready and vigilant, church. Again, it's not doing nothing. It's not a passive exercise. We pursue holiness But what, what else do we do? We do good works. We bless other people. We give. We act in compassion, in kindness. We care about each other. We care for each other. Remember the homework that I gave you last week? Galatians 6, verse 10. Uh, let's do good to all people, but especially the ones of the household of faith. So doing good to all people means you are going to do good to people who hate you. You are to do good to people who want to destroy you who want to persecute you, but especially, he says here, to the household of faith, meaning it's our job to meet each other's needs. We carry each other's burdens. And when we do this, the world looks at us and they say, I want that, that type of kindness, that type of compassion. I don't see that in the political party. I don't see that in my fishing club. I don't see that in my bowling league. I don't see that in my group of golf buddies. I don't see that in, in my school. Because the caring for one another, the shining the light of Christ so that the world can see us and glorify our Father is a specific blessing that God has granted to us. 
to do. And it is a blessing. It's, a, it's an obligation, but it is a blessing. So our light must shine. The only reason your light will shine is if you have enough oil, metaphorically speaking, obviously. So what's the, the, the marching orders of the day, church? Let's pursue sanctification. Let's pursue righteousness. Let's pursue holiness. Okay? So what is our hopeful prospect then, church, according to verse 10? Instead of worrying about tomorrow, losing sleep about the future, the same anxiety that the disciples experienced here, we must remain vigilant, pursuing holiness, not because of our desire to be in control, not because, it's, man, if I don't do this, uh, things are going to fall apart. No, because we are resting in his promises to take very good care of us, which leads us to the last point of today, the horrible prognosis, verses 11 through 13, a horrible prognosis. Tragically, but predictably, the uh, foolish virgins here missed the wedding feast. They were denied entrance because they did not bother to honor the bridegroom. And they realized the seriousness of their situation too late. Their scrambling to acquire oil accomplished nothing in the end. And like them, church, many people today think that they are in the kingdom because they belong to a quote-unquote Christian family or because they live in America or because three generations ago their grandfather was a pastor. It doesn't work like you remember. You can't borrow oil from grandpa or grandma. These are false believers, church. That's what Jesus is teaching us here, that there are false believers among the believers, among the people of God in churches. There are false believers and they manifest their counterfeit faith by refusing to prepare to meet the Lord. Perhaps, like the foolish virgins here, they believe that just hanging around with other believers, I'm just going to hang out with other believers. At least I'm not, I'm not at bars. I'm not doing anything. I'm not at, at the strip club. I'm hanging out with believers. They think that just because they hang out with believers, they will have enough credit to make it to heaven. What a tragic perspective. What a horrible prognosis here. They will be stopped at the gate. People who have that attitude, because they not because they lack the opportunity or time to personally come to Christ. They're not an unreached people group. They're not people who never heard of Jesus Christ. Their fatal mistake was to rebel against the long-suffering and the patience of the bridegroom. In fact, they superficially responded to the bridegroom. That's the reason why they were waiting for the bridegroom. They superficially responded. They had a superficial faith. I mean, the, the immediate example of that are the hypocrites and the Pharisees, superficial. They even dressed holy. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you sound holy, but you're not. You're, you're dressing like religious people, but you are a son of the devil. And the unwise virgins here represent these people, not the militant atheists, church, not the politically active LGBT folks, no, but the false Christian, the people who are sympathetic to the faith, the people who are the tares among the weed, what Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. They're hanging out with believers. They think they are going to the wedding feast, but they live as if he did not exist or that his promises were not true. And as a result, tragically, they will learn truth too late. Now, the good news is that everyone alive today, everyone alive today can acquire more oil, as it were, and that's the great news. Anyone alive today can come to Christ and say, I repent of my sin. Please change me. I want to be a true believer. And that's the good news. So uh, if there's anyone here in this situation, if you are a professor of faith but not a possessor of true faith, if you profess faith in Christ but you don't possess faith in Christ, today 
You must receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't fall asleep. Recognize you're a sinner and acknowledge his identity and power to save you. Repent and transfer your trust from self to Savior. Abandon any confidence in your flesh, any confidence in any family tradition, or your ability to, go- to be good people because you are not a good person by God's standard, and neither am I. Abandon all your desire to get to heaven on your own effort or on that merit of anybody else other than Christ. Second, for those of you who are believers, pursue Him like you're chasing after gold. Leave nothing in the field. Hold nothing back from pursuing Christ. Pursue Him daily, hourly, like you're chasing after riches because He is your greatest treasure. Cling to your Savior, your Redeemer, your Rewarder, and your Rescuer. He will never let you go. And even though, like the rest of us, you will be unfaithful from time to time, run to His arms, resting in His forgiveness, in His sovereignty, in His compassion and providence. And when anxiety hits, which happens, pray like the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. And he will do that because that is praying according to his will. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost through the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.